I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. Coming up, it's our Reimagining Africa series. We celebrate Africa Day, the founding of the Organization of African Unity, now known as the African Union, in May 1963. Here on The Spin, we're hearing from African women leading, thriving and reimagining sectors right here in Ghana, across Africa and in the diaspora. On this week's show, we're talking reimagining leadership. Across Africa... And in too many places in the diaspora in the West, leadership looks like a politician, a man, a nice suit, a V8 car, an air-conditioned office, and somebody, maybe many bodies, calling you Oga, boss, or big man. The big man of Africa visual is well known. Um, But Africa has women leaders, from Ellen Sirleaf Johnson, Africa's first president, to the dynamic and powerful Monica Gaingos, Namibia's first lady, Ghana's current second lady, Samira Baumia, and Ghana's former first lady, Nana Ajiman Rawlings. But so often, leadership in Africa is defined as being connected, specifically within the world of politics. Well, we're looking at leadership across the continent, and we're hearing how it is being refashioned, reimagined, and re-envisioned by dynamic, innovative women who are looking at the practical issue of problem-solving, throwing out the textbook, bringing fresh ideas to this table, and quite literally transforming the narrative. We're joined by two women who are reimagining this complex world that is leadership in Africa, Taka Awori and Lucy Quist. All of that coming up on The Spin's Reimagining Africa. So we're joined by two powerhouse African women who are international leaders, Taka Awori and Lucy Quist. Taka Awari is Managing Director of Busara Africa and is a leadership consultant, trainer and professional coach. Taka was actually the country director for ActionAid International Ghana and has more than 20 years working on organizational and governance issues in West, East and Southern Africa. I call her the leadership guru, actually, because she really is just that. Lucy Quist is the author of a powerhouse brand new book, The Bold New Normal. Her TED Talk of the same name attracted more than 7,000 views. She's the former CEO of Airtel Ghana and was tasked with a leadership role as vice president of Ghana's Football Normalization Committee after an investigative journalistic documentary alleging widespread corruption and bribery rocked the world of Ghana football. Welcome to Reimagining Africa, Lucy and Taka. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, great to be here today. What does leadership on the continent today mean to you and for you right now? Taka, let me start with you. Well, I'll start with what excites me about what's happening on the continent today. And and one of those things as we celebrate African Union Day is Agenda 2063, you know, the 50-year plan for Africa. And when I read this document, I'm excited by the vision of an Africa that's united, an Africa that's driven by a pan-African identity, an Africa that is citizen-led with a strong focus on women and young people, and an Africa that talks about transformative leadership. So that vision of the Africa we want to see is what is exciting me. Of course, it then lends the question to what type of leadership do we need 
to actually deliver on that vision. And I think that's where the conversation is around. We have a vision, but we need leadership to deliver on it. That's a powerful same question to you, Lucy. The notion of having a vision that unites Africa from a Pan-African point of view is an excellent one. I think that we need to collectively rally around the future vision. But added to that, I think it's essential that every single country defines for itself what its role will be in delivering on that vision. And that means that each country needs to have its own vision as well of what it's working towards that will become a leadership imperative that has to be realized for the future generations of that country. So I think that we have this wonderful patchwork of countries, which for me goes beyond this one word called Africa to these individual countries. And I think they can all bring a colorfully created vision to bring the patchwork together. So what that means for me today in terms of leadership is that our focus has to be, and my focus is, on the fact that every decision, every action we take in our position as leaders has to be focused on how we're going to get the next generations of Africans in whichever country to live a different reality, a different position in the world at large than what we experience today. One of the things that is exciting is the talk about vision, the idea of imagining a continent in which you would like to live. But Taka, you said what we have to think about is what is the leadership that you have to create in order to make that vision not a document, but a living, breathing reality? How do we stand it up on its feet so that it doesn't become what I think happens sometimes, which is this envisioned continent? made up of these extraordinary 54 nations and all the dynamism within them, the envisioning of that without saying, okay, but what is the leadership required to actually make that happen? So how do you answer that when people ask that question? We can no longer do the dance of leadership in the ways we've done it before and expect to realize this vision. So we need a new dance of leadership. And what does that look like in reality? One of the first things we need to do around leadership is change our relationship with power. To date, so much of our leadership dance with power has been around power over. People grab power to exercise authority to get people to do things. Instead, the new leadership, the reimagined leadership, is a leadership that uses a different type of power, power with, solidarity, people coming together to change things. Power to giving people the skills, the tools, the knowledge to be able to realize the vision. And most importantly, power within. This is about a different relationship with self. This is about thinking differently about our identity. It's about self-confidence to actually see when we think about ourselves as Africans, we no longer have a narrative around we can't do this or we can't do that. That's the power within. So that's the first thing I think that leadership needs to change. It's the relationship with power. The second, which I think is tied to the issue of the power within, is a much tougher one, but it's almost, I think, the new frontier. As leaders, we need to start to do the inner work. A key part of my leadership model is believing you lead from within 
to without. And when I see so many of the leadership challenges that we're facing on this continent today, and I learn from the wonderful leadership experiences, because it's not all negative, when I look at those who are really thriving in terms of the type of leadership that they offer, the common thing I notice amongst them is they've done the inner work. In concrete, what does that mean? They manage their egos. They ensure that their leadership practice, they're no longer projecting all their neuroses on their followers. So I think that's a key one that we don't often talk about, how we manage our emotions, how we align what we say with what we do. That's inner work that we don't spend enough time on and yet is a leadership imperative. So that's the second. The third, and I will stop here, is leadership by example. You can't lead another until you lead yourself. So, so far we have too many leaders proclaiming wonderful things, but until they actually start to live by that example, our wonderful Agenda 2063 cannot be realized. So those are some of the concrete types of changes we need to see in this leadership dance if we're to realize this amazing vision. Lucy, you spoke specifically about there being this, ensuring that each of the 54 nations contributes in their own particular dynamic way to creating this vision of Africa that you speak about. Talk about what that means to you. Of course, you're not speaking about for the 54 particular nations, but what kinds of ideas and models of leadership are you thinking of? What are you talking about? It's about leadership that's more visionary. So we have a challenge where... Most leaders in African countries are faced with immediate need. They're leading people who have immediate urgencies that need to be addressed here and now. And so they're constantly in this position where they're having to balance the how do I help fulfill the needs of today? And does that leave me enough room to plan for tomorrow? And so if you're always focused on today and giving people what they need, which is always urgent today, then you lose sight of that vision of what you want to create as a leader. And it's not because we don't have any leaders who are looking into the future from a visionary point of view, but it's about the reality and the practicalities of today. So I think what needs to happen in each of the countries, when I say we each need a vision of what our contribution will be to the realization of this new Africa across 54 countries by starting by realizing what works best for the individual country. Each country defining what will I be a powerhouse of? What will the citizens of my nation be known for beyond these negative narratives Mm -hmm. that we continue to hear? So I think we have a continent where today, fortunately, we have many great leaders who think this way and many great leaders who have visions of the future. What they also need now is a population that aligns with this new way of thinking because they need the support and the will of the people to also say that whether it means making sacrifices for today, working harder today, doing something different today, I will do it because my future child, grandchild, descendant, future African, whoever they may be, will benefit from the decisions and choices I made today 
because they were good decisions and choices that ensured that their future is more secure and more prosperous than the one I have today. So I think that's that's a key thing. Leadership with vision, leadership that knows how to balance and a population that's willing to support each country becoming a powerhouse in its own right. So in the past, we had some of these. I give you an example, like Ghana and West Africa, a generational or two ago was a powerhouse in education. And a lot of people of that for those um, older generations who went for higher education, whether it's in medicine, in very specified fields, actually ended up having to come and study in Ghana. Today in Ghana, we still have people coming to study, but the specialization element is not the same as it used to be. I'm not saying Ghana has to go back to being an education powerhouse for a region, but it has to be something that Ghana stands out for and so on and so forth each country. I know that in Rwanda, for instance, the idea of building a knowledge economy is extending to wanting people who have knowledge in different fields from across Africa. It's extending to them in the sense that they feel that they can find themselves there. And many examples of people are moving there to be part of this knowledge economy. So that's the kind of example I give that we can all greatly own something that will then benefit the rest of the continent to realize our vision as 54 countries. So here's one of the major challenges, and that is lingering narratives that don't necessarily reflect the dynamism and the reality across different countries within the continent. And so why do we still see leadership, certainly in places like Ghana, in the form of it's a man, a suit, a V8 and an office? And then internationally, it's the despot and a nation on its knees seeking help. Those are still very dominant narratives. So what purpose do they serve? How do they hurt the kind of leadership that we want to create? And are we doing enough to change it? Mm -hmm. The first part you asked around what purpose does it serve? It serves to perpetuate those in power because it serves to define leadership very narrowly. Leadership for me is about influencing others to realize a change. And if only a few have the power to do that, the others remain in a passive position essentially of following those in positions of leadership. So I think you're spot on in terms of the urgent need for that narrative to change, where leadership isn't about politicians or those who have positions of authority, but leadership is about all of us. And in fact, I think that the vision we're seeking to achieve cannot happen until all of us start to exercise leadership in our different corners. Some of the things that need to change are indeed the role of citizens. And increasingly, you're starting to see citizens starting to influence change around the type of political leadership that they would like to see. The most live one is what we're seeing in Sudan, what we're seeing in Algeria, how in is things changed in Zimbabwe? So I think increasingly citizens are starting to exercise leadership by defining what type of political leadership they will accept and what type of political leadership they won't accept. So I think there is more, however, that we can do in starting to shift those narratives by starting to tell more stories of those who are leading differently. And that's something I'm currently working on. And when I start to hear more and more about people who are leading differently and how we can learn from that, I think people start to realize, well, actually, 
bad le- Africa is not just about bad leadership. Africa is not just about the V8s. It's making sure that those stories, the stories we tell each other, increasingly shift. Lucy Christie, your thoughts? I personally don't subscribe to this notion of, you know, if something, if, if the world has a challenge, it's forcibly worse in Africa. So around the world today, we have many leadership challenges and issues, and they, a lot of them are human challenges. And some things are happening in other parts of the world where, I mean, if they happened in an African country, we would all be horrified. So we have examples of poor leadership in countries that you'd least expect to see that without naming names. So that then brings us to the issue of why then does it mean that every time when people want to have a conversation of leadership that that's not positive, that's negative, they, they put, put it on an Africa. And I think it's because I don't believe that the narrative of Africa has structurally changed in my lifetime. I believe it's because the, the, the biggest reason is that not enough people in Africa are taking ownership of their own story. So it means that the narrative of Africa continues to be driven by people who have a perspective, what I call the outside-in perspective of the continent. And in some cases, sadly, they're people who have even never stepped foot in Africa. They've only read about it or seen on the television screen or heard it on the radio, about Africa on the radio. And so they're telling a story about a continent they actually have no personal experience of. If you honestly observe international media, every time there's something in Africa and there's an expert to talk about Africa, at least eight times out of 10, this expert on Africa is not African. And I keep saying, how is it that on a continent of 1.2 billion people, we couldn't find an expert on this particular subject? We had to find someone who's not African. So there's this narrative that we need to change by taking ownership. So it's a leadership responsibility from an African point of view. And I like what Taka said about different leaders within their own sphere of influence. Because when when we say leaders, we're not just talking about politicians. We all lead within our sphere of influence. And for some of us, our job is to direct people who are doing other but some people within that conversation are the storytellers who tell brilliant stories and we need to hear more of those storytellers media people who will shape the narrative because today I tell people all the time that the biggest marketing campaign for Africa and every country and every continent has their own marketing campaign the biggest marketing campaign for Africa is charity if you are not African most of your life the stories you would have seen and heard about Africa would be an advert for a charity, an NGO. That is our narrative. And sometimes we forget that they actually own our story more than any other organization in the world because they tell it more frequently and in ways that people can relate to because they put a human face to it and make that human face personify a continent. And these structures benefit people. If we have structures where a negative narrative is being told, then it means that some leaders who are not good at leadership can get away with it because, after all, in the midst of all this strife, you're doing something, so to speak, doesn't make it okay. It also means that sometimes when people who are not African engage with Africa, it gives them an excuse to also be poor leaders in their engagement. Because bear in mind that it's about engagement as well with the rest of the world. And sometimes those poor leaders think, well, I'm okay because I'm not as bad as your leaders. We need to put out the stories of the leaders who are doing the right thing on this continent. What's really powerful about that for me is two things. I think that somebody who lived in London, who's Ghanaian, I remember Live Aid and the story of Africa through the lens of 
famine and helplessness and hopelessness. It's a narrative that doesn't just damage an image, but it fuels a business. Somebody's getting very rich of this lingering narrative about poverty. And I wonder if some of the examples of the leadership that speak to the kind of the despotism that we've known historically also profit from that particular narrative. The wonderful Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie mm-hmm. talked about the danger of this single story. But I wonder, though, when it comes to leadership, how and in what ways are we doing enough to intervene in that narrative and ensure that people have another version, another vision of leadership. You're both women who are actually, your book is literally out right now, The Bold New Normal. And I think books are a powerful way to literally turn a story around and intervene, literally shift the narrative. And your book on the untold stories of leadership in Africa does an important and similar intervention. Two dynamic women doing amazing work. Is that enough? No. (laughs) Definitely not. I think one dimension around the narrative that I think it's important to emphasize. It's not just the stories that others tell about us. It's the stories we tell ourselves about us. And in terms of what's unfinished, I think there is unfinished business around decolonization of our minds. As Africans, we are the only ones, whether we're sitting down as Zimbabweans or Kenyans or Ghanaians, we're the only ones who can spend five hours talking about what's wrong with us as Kenyans or what's wrong with us as Ghanaians. Would you find a Canadian going on and on? They would be a little bit more specific about that group or that group, but they don't generalize. So increasingly, I think that is what we need to start to interrogate and be a lot more self-aware in terms of the stories we're telling ourselves about who we are. Our self-identity defines what we live up to and our expectations of ourselves. Now, when we think about leadership specifically, the only story we're telling ourselves is that, ah, as for Africans, we're terrible leaders. Look at so, 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 so. So what will we aspire to? When we give examples of amazing leaders, we're like, oh, those are the outliers. Those are quite different. But instead, we need to be telling a story of actually this person, this person, this person, And for me as a leadership practitioner, I go further and I say, even within the constraints and limitations that many of us face who are in the front line of doing leadership work, this is how you can go around it. One, two, three. We don't just talk theory. We get into the practice, the nitty gritty. So for me, that's the next piece of work. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Mm, Lucy Quist. We continue to tell each other these stories and we continue not only tell each other in real time as in a you and me talking to each other, but we're handing it down generation after generation. So each generation is telling each other. And one big factor, like you mentioned, is this need to decolonize the mindset. And part of the issue is that I think when we have leadership conversations, We're not searching far enough and deeply enough. So we almost tell a story as a post-colonial continent and everything that's happened in leadership in a time that has been a challenge, right? Some of the developed countries that we see have had centuries of that. We look at the last six decades or so, six and a half, whatever, and then we focus as though that's an entire definition. And I keep telling people that my history is not only post-colonial, 
the leaders that I look to, I learn from, I search from, they are leaders who predate this. Because if even my mother is older than an independent Ghana, my grandmother's stories are relevant to me and her mother's stories are relevant to me and her father's. So what they did, how they led, what they did to make sure that generation after generation they made progress. I listened to those stories because, yes, they may not be corporate leaders like I am. They may not be leaders that have this you know, wonderful education. But the bottom line is when I sit down carefully and I listen, I hear leadership lessons that inform my leadership. And it's important that we decolonize the mindset, that we take a, a position that says leadership is not a new concept mm-hmm. to Africa. It's mm. an age-old mm. concept, mm. and it has been done very well by many, mm-hmm. including women, because there's always this notion that, oh, the further back you go in time, that we had, you know, Queen Nzinga, who was negotiating for her people in Angola in real time, saying what won't happen because she had seen what was going on in, in Luanda. You have, you know, of course, Ghana's Yasa. You have so many women. If we want to focus, we have women in leadership who have stood up amongst an entire group of people and said, no, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to lead the way. And so we need to draw on those examples as well, especially the women that say to us, you can because this isn't new to you. This isn't something Mm -hmm. that you invented or created. You may have had disruptions in your journey, but you have examples that you can tap into and take off from. Takawari spoke about doing the dance of leadership, but I suspect she didn't necessarily mean Eddie Kay. But we'll hear his dance anyway. Everybody, make us see you do the dance. Do the dance. Do the dance. Everybody, make us see you do the dance. Do the dance. Do the dance. Everybody, make us see you do the dance. Do the dance. Listening to Reimagining Africa on the Spin. It's our special series for Africa Day, the annual May celebration of the birth on May 25th, 1963, of what was then 
the Organization of African Unity and became the African Union. And now, of course, it's known as Africa Day. Leadership in Africa, reimagining it, investing in it, revolutionizing it, and changing hearts and minds. We are on air in London on ABN Radio UK, across the United States, in Iowa, Arizona, North Carolina, Massachusetts, South Carolina, New Jersey and Mississippi. We are online on SoundCloud and iTunes. Freedom. Freedom. Reimagining Africa, African women, on the mic, moving the needle, doing the work, taking the lead. We keep it global with the discussion, but we make it gangster with the music. It's been a minute since me that you reason where we laugh some. You the guy that time will be Kirisa now. The chat scale is pillar loads and the pampanas. Watching us suffer dancing, we thought we would never grow up. By the fire side, mama Dokolo was so hot, but now it was hotter than Uncle George Lane's. Cheche Kule, Cheche Kofisa drove us insane. Charlie, you the Kai Italian, I did in the goal. We were Jamila score, dancing with a flat call. Better get, get, you the Kai Senegal 92. Ghana, then Ivory Coast, they see the keeper used to you. Oh, Charlie, the cell phones from back in the day. When we tell me that I'm once in America, I say, well, some things change and some might not. But when they reminisce over you, my God. Secondary school time, catch no be small. Me, I go more down where you learn and survive. Gary and Shetto was the ish that kept us all alive. But where'd you decline the nightclubs for Osu? You shot a fine, fine goal where they bounce you. So you go change your clothes, come back, they let you on just to realize you should have stayed. So, time for part two of our discussion on leadership on our Reimagining Africa series. So, let's get more personal now regarding both Tackers and leadership's own leadership styles, lessons that you've had to learn 
the unlearning you've had to do and the challenges you face and the ways in which you approach all of this. Lucy, let me start with you. Talk about your own model of leadership, where you learned it and what inspires it. I tell people all the time that my greatest leadership lessons have all occurred in Africa. Not all necessarily in Ghana, because I've worked in different countries, but they've all occurred on this continent. So for me, the starting point, the baseline, is what I learned from my own family. When families teach you, particularly when it comes to topics like leadership, they don't give you lectures, they share stories of examples. My, my mother's grandfather, for instance, was a chief, so she would tell me about what he told them and some of his rules. And he had simple rules. You don't get yourself, put yourself in a position where you have to be summoned for a hearing. You have to be able to live your life and hold yourself together where summons are not part of your outcomes. You know, the choices he made in, in leading this village that he was in charge of, how he managed the system of taxation, how they had a day set aside for actually owning the entire environment. You own your own little, your own you know, house, but then the whole place becomes everybody's job at a certain time in the month. So for me, the starting point is about these lessons that I've been taught that I didn't even realize were lessons. They just seem to be what I'm supposed to know and do. The second is around values and the values that I identified growing up in leaders that I thought were good examples and were doing the right thing um, that I could learn from. I remember being as young as about seven or eight and it's not the first book my father bought for me but it was the first book in the direction of leadership. So I'd read lots of storybooks as children do. Um, and I still have this book to this day. When I was about seven or eight, my father bought me the book, which is the life story of Shil Shagari, former president of Nigeria. Obviously, reading the book as a child... I probably had no idea what these things, these big words were about, but I guess my dad says I'm supposed to read it. So let's you know, figure out, look at more pictures as we go along. And more recently, I picked it up again. It's a bit old and tired, but I picked it up again. And I was so unbelievably shocked and not entirely positively of how the narrative of his life and his country was being told and it was such a negative narration of a country around this leader. Okay, so my father bought it for inspiration. I have gone back to it and realized some of these narratives are even captured, you know, how they're captured in print and tell a story of a Nigeria this and a Nigeria that and, and Sheo Shagari's in your role and what he could do and so on. I thought, wow, this is interesting. So some of it is the lessons. Some is the values that you, you draw out of these lessons. I believe in integrity, excellence, you know, generosity. We have a role as leaders to actually give and not necessarily just take. And then I think more broadly in business. Since I remember when I was coming to work on the continent for the first time after studying and, and work experience, the, the first person I worked for, he wasn't African, but he said to me, he said, oh, this is a very chaotic place and it's very sort of, you know, everything is all over the place and you're used to order. How are you going to cope? I looked him straight in the eye and I said, actually, that's where we, we do actually need people who are orderly because we need to organize ourselves. We need the order to cut through it. So it's an opportunity to also practice leadership, but also to learn. I had a conversation 
with a lecturer from my business school. And he said to me that, you know, what people don't actually realize is that in, in a situation where people have all these desperate situations and needs, it takes more to lead, not less. And this is actually a great place to train leaders for the world and not the opposite. If you have leaders who actually have great intentions, who want to do the right thing, this is the place to become a great leader and a good leader. Because if you can cut through and make things work positively and exhibit the right characteristics as a leader, in spite of what is around you, then you truly are someone who can lead anywhere. Taka Wawari. My model of leadership is leadership from the inside out. I learned it from watching and observing people, not just in leadership positions, but people who are having influence over others and, and able to bring people along to achieve something either positively or negatively. And and what I noticed about them is that those who did it exceedingly well were people who had what Lucy described, integrity, character, values, a sense of servant leadership. And that's stuff that's on the inside. Those who did it badly, and there were enough of those I was observing who were doing it badly, I noticed, as I had mentioned before, lacked those things because those things don't come automatically. Those are things you work on intentionally. Those are things where you look at yourself in the mirror in the dead of the night and you're like, I don't like what I see, so I'm willing to work on that. Those are things where people give you feedback that bring tears to your eyes. But at the end of the day, you have to say, that's who I am and I will deal with that. So those who I saw were doing an amazing job of leadership were those who had done that inner work. Those wonderful leadership practices that I was seeing were a reflection of who they are inside. As part of my practice around leadership development, it always starts with a self. It's saying that before we rush to teach you techniques on delegating, having a vision and you know, all of that stuff, let's start with what's happening inside you. Because again, when I was watching those who weren't very successful, some of them were the most brilliant people I've come across in terms of high IQ out the door, business strategy, absolutely amazing. But they were alienating people weren't bringing people along with them. So I think that's why my model has been very much start with what's inside. Do that work. Invest in it. Be centered. If you have a higher power, be centered in that. Then you increase the likelihood that the practice you see is a reflection of the good inside. I think such a huge part of learning to lead requires some unlearning. Mm. And that can manifest in all kinds of ways. So I wonder for you both, what have you had to unlearn personally in terms of your own leadership style in order to become more effective or more impactful? And what was the thing that caused you to learn it? What was the trigger point? What was the story that caused you to learn it? Lucy. One great thing that I've had to strongly unlearn, particularly to be successful as a leader, is how I create success. When you go through school, a lot of school is about you. And I speak for myself and hopefully other people may identify with this. But when you go through school and you're good at school, you can almost leave with a sense of I'm in control of how I succeed. You know, I can read the book, I can do the experiment, I can do this and I'll get the work done. And it's useful for while you're in school because your formation is dependent on your willingness and your ability to, to want to succeed. 
What I had to unlearn was the fact that my success as a leader is really not about me. It's about how I can get other people to be their best. It's about how I can sit in a room and listen, even if I think I have the answer, be willing to hear other people's answers. They may refine my answer. They may even have answers that are far better than my answer. But if I rely on self as knowing and being able to deliver successfully because of past experience, I become a leader who's doomed to fail because you cannot succeed at leading if you cannot let other people be their own best selves and become leaders in their own right, in their own sphere of, of influence, in, in being willing to create them as leaders and watch them succeed, even at things that you can't succeed at. And so for me, that's a key thing that I, I've deliberately had to unlearn because it was a, a way of being that was useful when I was in school. But I don't think it really serves me fully as a leader to rely on myself for success. Leading is about taking everybody along with you to create that success. Mm. And learning. Nice, nice. Two big ones, but trust me, there are more. <laughs> but one on leading self and one on leading others. As a high achiever, I always believed that failure is a no-no. Just my relationship with failure, dodge it, avoid it, do whatever you can to make sure you never failed. Huh? Along my journey, one of the things I've had to unlearn is that, to me, failure is a gift. I make peace with the emotions that come along with it, the disappointment, the sadness, the shame, and then move on to learn the lesson. But that hasn't been easy. But I recognize that by being able to do that for myself, the others I lead, I give them the gift of saying, you can also fail. You can also mess up, but it's how we learn from it. And therefore, I start to see people are more innovative because they're not so afraid to do different things. So that's the first one. Unlearning that failure is a bad thing. Indeed, failure can be a gift. The second is I confess here on air that for a long time, I was a card-bearing member of the People Pleasers Club. <laughs> and sometimes I do renew my membership in it. Approval means a lot. To me. So what I had to truly unlearn in leadership was that leadership is being liked because I could see how it was getting in the way of making tough decisions because I was so worried. Oh, my gosh, if I do, they won't like me. They will say I'm a bad leader. They will say I'm a dictator. So finally letting that go and saying if I've thought through the issue long and hard enough and I've come to the right decision, some people won't like it. They won't like me. And it's oh. Okay. It's not to say I won't struggle with it. So that's a being, you know, leadership is about being respected, recognizing you are loved, even though you love others, even though they may not like you at certain moments. What is interesting for me about that is, is two things. I think that likability is very gendered, um, mm. not just in Africa, but all over the world, that as girls are taught that to be pleasing is equal to success. And there are things that you do that are pleasing and there are things that you do that are not. And you are taught as a girl and you are taught as a woman that when you please, you are rewarded. And when you don't, you are punished. And impactful leadership, a nation on this continent, requires that unlearning in particular ways. Because I don't know anybody's aspiration is to be hated. 
<laughs> Do you yes, know what yes, I mean? Yes, like, yes, I, yes, I'm yes, not waking yes. up saying, well, just come and hate me. It's all good. Yes, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to manage. Yes. That likability issue with leadership. Of course, I say it's gendered because, you know, we know that there's a difference in language. If men are tough, it's about drive and wanting to see change and succeed. There is a languaging of toughness in men that does not make them unlikable to the people they're leading. People will honour that, honour those tough choices and recognise how it's helping them. And for women, we know that even how you're languaged as a woman can shape how you lead. And you talked about likability. I wonder if, Lucy, what that if that was something for you and if it was, how did it manifest itself? Ultimately, we're human beings and we don't want to be isolated. We want to be with other people. And likability for me translated into pleasing. But thankfully, I think I got out of that relatively young because life happened and I had to make decisions and choices and I had to recognize the fact that they were my responsibility. So it wasn't about being liked. But this aspect that you talk about it being gendered, I think, is a really important conversation, one that we need to continue to have. Because for me, the greater danger, and I have experienced it on occasion, is that even within a community of women, this notion that toughness is ascribed to a man and a woman who is tough in a leadership position is not nice. She is bad to other women. I hear it translated into she not being a woman for women. And I always um, push back and I say, well, hang on, guys, for the same thing that this woman did that you said makes her a bad woman leader, a bad example to other women because she didn't treat them with kid gloves and and be their mother. Because that's what people expect, right? Part of the likability is that you're the leader, then you're the mother and you're the caregiver. And so, but if you're a man, you don't have to be those things. It sometimes skews the conversation and leaves young women thinking there's a problem with women being leaders and I'm not so sure I want to be one and I want us as women young and old to do some self-reflection on the subject of am I viewing a woman in leadership through a different lens than the one I'd use for a man am I suddenly ascribing more negative terms to her as a leadership example compared to what I described to a man for the same behavior and so I think that is a, a challenge, in my view, as a woman, that could be unique to women in leadership, because I've experienced it where people have said, oh, um, we heard you're very results oriented and you do this and you do that, you're really tough. And then when they actually get to know and work with me, they're, sometimes they're like, oh, but you're actually nice. And I, I'm like, what does that mean? So it is this notion of when women in leadership have the same expectations as men in leadership, somehow we can't see them as leaders in the same way. What has been the most painful lesson in leadership you have learned and what did it teach you? Taka. Partly tied to this this same issue of likability, yeah? I delayed having a difficult conversation. And and one of the things I've learned and one of the things I facilitate and teach is how to have what they may call difficult, crucial conversations. I was a conflict avoider for all the things I mentioned before. And yet, now increasingly, I see conflict as an opportunity to hash out difference. But but I was in a situation where somebody wasn't performing, and I really delayed having that difficult conversation. I dodged and went around, and they took advantage of that. And when eventually I had that difficult conversation, there were consequences around, there was a response 
response back where I was accused of all kinds of things. The organization was accused of all kinds of things. What did I learn from it? Don't delay. You know, there's a skill set on how to have these conversations in a productive, constructive way. That is also when I learned conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be an opportunity to actually hash out difference. That's also when I learned that I needed to deal with this likability issue, because I think that was also happening at the moment. And in the end, the way we handled it as an organization were very transparent about what had happened. So therefore, we immediately disengaged the rumor milling that was going on around it. So that was another lesson to me about sometimes when these things are happening, it's important to get ahead of the narrative and to use it, to use it as, oh, no, it's not that these bad things happen, but to use it to say, what are we learning? What am I learning first? And then what can we learn as an organization or as a company or whatever to deal with these things so they don't happen in the future? But mm. it was hard. Most painful lesson, Lucy, what happened? Mo- the most painful lesson for me has been around holding someone up to my views and values on integrity. When, when someone performs and delivers and they get everything done, that's great. And especially if you work with a person for a long time, it, it really is um, a positive. You, be, you develop a relationship that's not just driven by the fact that the person is a good performer, but you get to know them. The thing is that I cannot compromise on integrity. So mistakes happen. And I think the mistakes that are easier to engage, even though they don't always seem so at the time, is when you're dealing with performance, delivery, people carrying things through. When it comes to integrity, it's a completely different conversation, in my view, from that. And the painful thing for me was to have to not only have that conversation, but take the action around resolving a lack of integrity. And people sometimes think that when you say you hold yourself to a certain level of integrity and that you hold others to it, sometimes people think it's, it's all talk. But on more than one occasion, when I've had to really sit down with someone I work with and say, look, what you did, there's n- nothing I can do about it. This isn't a performance conversation where I'll say, you know, PIP, go and perform and let, let's put you through a performance improvement plan. This is a conversation about your fundamental values. And if you can do this, you cannot continue to be part of what we're doing. It's painful because you have a relationship with the person. You actually care about the person. Maybe sometimes people lack integrity because they've never actually faced consequences for it. And and in the long run, hopefully for some of those people, they see it as a a lesson learned that will help them into the future. The second thing is as a leader, you must practice what you preach. And the entire organization must be able to see that you hold everybody to the same standard, even if they're people who are seen to be people you know and talk to more often, it's extremely important. It's painful, but I believe it has to be done. And, and in the long run, it serves everybody well. But mm. it was painful. It, each time I've had to do it, it has been painful for me. 2019 has been declared as the year of return, uh, the anniversary of when Africans would become enslaved and end up, particularly for this anniversary on what's defined as North America, and to be ultimately called African-Americans today. Returning is, uh, for me, an interesting word. The idea of turning something around or coming back to a space that you left, and you are changed and it is changed. It is forever changed. It can never be what it was. Lucy, you spoke initially about 
that leadership is a longer journey than this post-colonial understanding we have that limits it to this moment. And we have extraordinary examples that go all the way back. You mentioned Ghana's Yaa Santua, Queen Nzinga of Angola, extraordinary women, African women in leadership who have stood up in pivotal moments and worked to change the course of a history. So that has been then. We are in this moment now. So define leadership now for you. How are you reimagining it in your own work and for our continent? That's our closing question. For me, leadership is unleashing the best in me and others to unleash the best on this continent. That's what we call a tweetable. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy Quest, final word to you. For me, leadership is about a new vision of Africa. Not only just a vision, but a vision that informs what we say about Africa. Because I believe that what we say about Africa, especially as Africans, will inform our mindset around Africa. And if we can positively change our mindsets, we will change the actions that we take every single day to create a prosperous Africa. Little thing where she get 
That's your hour reimagining leadership on our Africa Day celebration series. Thank you so much, Takawari, Lucy Thank Quiz. You. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Thank you for having yeah. us. <laughs> I want to hear myself. <laughs> <laughs> This spin is brought to you by Global Team, our sound editor, David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, and Loretta Rucker of the AAPRC. The spin, your hour of talk, is smart, is sexy. I'm your host, Esther Amo. Robbery, cold, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mine on black, just follow me, honestly, 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 all these jokers economy, puppets with no autonomy, yup, it's food, you can me. I see you looking, but you better take, take it easy, easy. tell your goons that they better take it easy, here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy, take it easy, you better take it easy, too much ex-mommy, take it easy, good with the sex, you be like, take it easy, Mommy, take it easy, take it easy, you better take it easy You moving bricks, but you better take it easy Here's a tip, you too flash I don't tip twice, but your best friend, he DT And that dog sniffing the bag ain't lassie And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up And I ain't blood on your shirt, man, that's ketchup Picture cleft, get in the writer to give him help I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost and write for myself Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity MC I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies Yeah, a ghetto maestro with a nat turn of flow Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show I see you looking, but you better take it easy Tell your goose that they better take it easy Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy Take it easy, you better take it easy Too much ex-mommy, take it easy Good with the sex, you be like, take it easy Coming? Yeah, right. Been in LA, few flicks, few millions. Back with the Fuji food, fighting for a few billions. The play billing, some boy chilling. Anything we get, we boy, let cash for me billing. Angela, Simone, Michelle, you know them willing. Can't fight the feeling when I pull in the SNR. Every girl love the ghetto superstar. Real hip hop like pinstripe leads. Like I love for my crew, like big half of C's. Pulling squeeze on these MCs. Man, I don't really wanna do it. 
take it easy. I see you looking, but you better take, take it easy. Tell your goose that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. You're good with the sex, you'll be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. We got El Boogie in the house. Croswell in the house. Yeah. Big Row, I see you in the back. Let's get this thing started. Let's stay focused, 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 focused. Oh, if, if you don't know what's going on, man, the Fuji's is back on the street. Serious thing right now. You scared yet? This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.